Welcome to the Bible Teachers, featuring sermons from around Australia. And here is today's presenter, Pastor Danny Malenkoff. Today's sermon um, title is Behold, the Bridegroom is Coming. Go out to meet him. Go out to meet him. It's part two in this uh, new series that we started a, a few weeks ago, Preparing to Meet the Bridegroom. We are looking at the all-important question of how to prepare to meet the bridegroom. The bridegroom is none other than Jesus Christ. There is nothing more important than being ready to meet the bridegroom, being ready to meet Jesus. Over the past few weeks, probably months, but in particular the last few weeks, Obviously, a lot of things have been taking place in the world. How many of you are aware of that? There's been a lot of things in a lot of different areas. And I've had people come up to me time and time again asking me, Pastor Danny, what's taking place? I mean, they know what's taking place. They can see as I can see. We can all see what's taking place. But does this have any significance? Does the Bible have anything to say about the times that we are living in? So I made a decision that I needed to share a few things, um, what the Bible does say concerning the times that we're living in. Now, I understand that today in this group, there are individuals who are on various levels of understanding when it comes to the Bible, and in particular when it comes to Bible prophecy. There are some that have their PhD in Bible prophecy. They've been studying Bible prophecy and the Bible for decades, whereas there are others who maybe are still in kindergarten. They've only been studying or learning for the past few weeks or months or maybe a year or so. So I know that we're all at different stages in our journey. So in order for all of us to be on the same page, because this is so, so, so important that we may all be on the same page, I've made a decision that we're going to slow things down I was planning on sharing this particular message all in one hit, all in one serving. But as I was going through and as I was praying and reflecting, um, I realized that it would be impossible for all of us to be on the same page and at the same time get through everything in, in, in one serving. And so I made a decision, and I believe that God impressed me, that would slow things down, take things step by step so that all of us, no matter where we are on that spectrum of knowledge and understanding that we can all be on the same page and all understand this all-important message. Amen? You all with me? So today, we're going to take a look at what the Bible has to say. We're going to compare the Bible with the news headlines. In fact, just this week, just this week, I received uh, Time Magazine in my mail. I subscribe to Time Magazine. It gives me a handle on what's going on in the world. Don't have real, don't have a lot of time to, to sort of keep up um, with what's taking place in the new, in, in the world um, when it comes to news and current events. So Time's kind of helpful. And this week's edition was entitled "The Answers Issue." The Answers Issue. Um, answers and questions. For example, what does space smell like? You can find out all about that. Where's the safest place to sit on a plane? What's the healthiest fast food? 
Well, there isn't one. What's the best job? How do I get this stupid song out of my head? What's the most expensive high school in the world? Why does squinting help you see better? And so on and so on and so on. This Time magazine answers a whole bunch of questions, a whole bunch of, well, irrelevant questions. Most of them are irrelevant, like what country has the fastest internet? Who cares? Um, but the, the question that this Time magazine doesn't answer, that the Bible answers, is what is really going on in the world and how close are we to the coming of the bridegroom? So that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to take a look at what the Bible has to say as it compares to the news headlines. Behold, the bridegroom is coming. We're going to discover how close we are to the coming of the bridegroom. And the all-important question of how do we go out to meet the bridegroom? It's useless to know that Jesus is coming soon and not be ready to meet him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much that we can come before you this morning. Thank you for giving me um, health and strength. Wasn't quite sure what was going to take place um, Tuesday night, but thank you, Lord. I'm here and I'm almost 100%. And I just pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit will lead and guide us as we open your word. Father, as we seek to answer the all-important questions of how close we are to the coming of the bridegroom, and more importantly, how do we go out to meet him? How do we prepare for the coming of the bridegroom? I pray that your Holy Spirit will lead and guide us. For this is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Well, right from the word go, I invite you to turn with me to Matthew 24. Matthew 24, given your page number there, page 1426. And... Um, we're going to be going through very, very quickly. As I pointed out, there's a lot of material to get through. And um, today we're simply going to be looking at the big picture. What kind of picture? The big picture. Yes, we're not going to get into the nitty-gritty because it's impossible. We'll be here all day and all night. There's just so much going on in the world as it compares to Bible prophecy. But today we're simply looking at the big picture as we begin this journey together. Now, Matthew 24 and 25 uh, Jesus, is Jesus' sermon on the mount. It's his largest sermon that he gives just before his crucifixion. In Matthew 24, we have Jesus giving us the signs of his coming. And in Matthew 25, he gives us three parables how we can prepare for his coming. So we, we all together... Matthew 24 is all about how close we are to the coming of Jesus. Matthew 25 is all about the even more important question of how do I prepare for the coming of Jesus? The last time we were together, we looked at this first parable in Matthew 25. Now, we don't have time to go through it in detail, but I would like to, in very rapid fire, just point out some of the key points, preparing to meet the bridegroom. You can go home and you can read Matthew 25, verses 1 to verse 13 that, that um, show forth this parable. Firstly, we discovered that these ten virgins that the parable speaks of men, all ten virgins, they represent the church of Christ. They are all waiting for the bridegroom who is Christ. Secondly, we discovered that all ten virgins have a lamp. And what does the lamp represent? The Word of God. So they all have access to the Bible. 
Thirdly, we discovered that all of the virgins or, or the church of Christ or the believers of Christ, they all fall asleep as Christ's coming is what? Delayed. There's a delay and they all fall asleep, all ten of them. We've discovered that all wake up when they hear the cry, Behold, the bridegroom is what? Coming. Go out to do what? Meet him. They all wake up. The bridegroom is coming. However, five of the virgins are described by Christ as wise and they have enough oil, and oil represents the Holy Spirit, to see them through to the wedding banquet, whereas the five foolish virgins have run out of oil at the most critical time in earth's history. No oil means no wedding banquet means no eternal salvation. Number six, the five wise virgins cannot give any of their oil. And what does that ultimately represent? It represents the Holy Spirit who has performed his work of, of creating within us a character, the character of Jesus, a Christ-like character. And so the five that have allowed the Holy Spirit to create within them a Christ-like character, they can't transfer that to the other five that didn't take that time to allow Christ to perform his work of character in their lives. Character cannot be transferred. Number seven, only those with oil enter into the wedding. And finally, number eight, the foolish are left outside. To their desperate pleas to enter, they hear the words of Jesus, Assuredly I say to you, I do what? Not know you. I don't know you. You never took the time to get to know me. You never took the time to allow me to prepare you for my coming, to allow me through my Holy Spirit to, to impart to you the character of Jesus. I'm sorry, I don't know you. The saddest words that Jesus will ever utter, ever utter are these, I am sorry. I don't know you. I don't know you. I do not want any single person here today to hear those words. I'm sorry. I don't know you. Now is the time to get to know Jesus. Now is the time to get to know Jesus. And today is all about not only getting to know the times that we're living in, but more importantly, how we can be ready for the coming of Jesus, how we can get to know him. By the way, at what time was the cry heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming? Have a look at verse 6. Matthew 25 and verse 6. Matthew 25 and verse 6, page 1428. Words are in red, Jesus speaking. And at what time? And at midnight, a cry was heard, midnight. Why midnight? Midnight is a symbol in the Bible for the darkest part of the night. What the Bible is telling us, what Jesus is telling us, that the cry of Jesus coming will be heard at the darkest time in earth's history. Are you with me? 
At the darkest point in earth's history, the cry will be heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. Now, my question to you, and I'm sure you have the same question, is how close are we to that midnight hour of earth's history? How close are we to that midnight hour? And let's never forget, the parable is clear. Once the cry is heard, behold, the bridegroom is coming. It's too late then. It's too late then to get ready. Isn't that right? The horse is bolted. The train is gone. It's all over. Now is the time before the cry is heard. So how close are we to that midnight hour? Well... There's a group of scientists called uh, the the Atomic Scientists. What a name, the Atomic Scientists. And uh, back in 1947, they published uh, this journal entitled Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists. These are scientists from all around the world that um, are looking at what's going on in the world, just observing the various trends in the world. And they have come up with what is known as the doomsday clock. Have you heard of, how many of you have heard of the doomsday clock? Okay. They've come up with the doomsday clock. And um, based on what's going on in the world, the clock is either closer or further away from midnight. Now, how do they base their clock? And what, 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 how do they base it? Notice this. This is from them. This is just a summary of, of, of how they base their clock. The Doomsday Clock is an internationally recognized design that conveys how close we are to destroying our civilization with dangerous technologies of our own making. First and foremost, among these are nuclear weapons, but the dangers include climate-changing technologies, emerging biotechnologies, and cyber technology that could inflict irrevocable harm, whether by intention, miscalculation, or by accident, to our way of life and to the planet. So based on this criteria, the scientists have been moving the clock forward and backward. Here is a chart from when we began in 1947. The clock started off at seven minutes to midnight. That's midnight down there, that line down there. And it's sort of gone down. Then when things were looking a little better in the world, the clock went back up. Then when things went down, up and down, up and down, as you can see, uh, went down pretty bad, down there in 1984. But then the good times kicked in, didn't they? The 1980s, we had good times. But then from about the early 1990s, from 1991, guess where the clock has been going? Down, down, down. Well, where is the clock today? You'd be interested to know. I picked this up. January 23, 2015, the ABC News um, headlines read, Doomsday clock moved closer to midnight after rising threat from climate change. The clock today is at three minutes to midnight. Is that pretty close? Absolutely, three minutes to midnight. Now, you may be thinking, Danny, with all due respect, who on earth is going to take these scientists seriously? I mean, they're just alarmists. They're just, well, sensational, or they're, they're trying to maybe scare people. Maybe they're paid by the government. 
you know, there's a whole bunch of conspiracy theories out there. How many of you know there's a whole bunch of conspiracy theories, especially on the internet? Okay. I'm not into this doomsday clock. I'm into the Bible, Danny. I want to know what the Bible has to say. Well, good for you. I'm with you on that one. I'm into the Bible as well. I want to know what God has to say. I respect our scientists, and I can see things are not very good, but what does the Bible say? Does the Bible have anything to say about how close we are to that midnight hour? Well, I discovered that the Bible actually has a clock. Did you know that God has a clock? It's not an hourglass, in case you're wondering. That's not God's clock. But God actually has a clock, and it's found in His Word. Now, before we go to God's clock, let me ask you a couple of questions. How long did it take God to create the world? How many days? Six days. What did he do on the seventh day? He rested. So six days he worked, he rested on the seventh day. With that in mind, let me take you through God's time clock of history. Have it up here on the screen. The history of the world, God's clock. So we have creation there, year zero. It took a thousand years and then we have the the death of Adam. Another 500 more years, we have the flood. Another 500 more years, we have the birth of Abraham and the birth of the children of Israel. 500 more years and we have the Exodus. The children of Israel, they leave Egypt. Half past, we have David, King David coming onto the throne. 500 more years, we have the Israelites going into captivity in Babylon. We move the, the, the clock forward Five minutes and we come to the time of Christ, Jesus. He turns up 20 minutes before midnight, 2,000 years ago. We have then the apostasy, the great apostasy or when Bible truth was distorted 1,500 years ago. 1,000 years ago, we have what is called the Dark Ages, okay, when Bible truth could not be found in most of the world, the dark ages. Then 500 years ago, it's five minutes to midnight, we have the birth of the Reformation. Five minutes before midnight, the birth of the Reformation. God is about to restore the truth, the truth that had been cast down during the dark ages. 200 years ago, 1798, according to the Bible, and I don't have time to unpack all this. We have the beginning of the time of the end. In 1844, we have the beginning of the judgment hour. Okay, we're only one and a half minutes to midnight now. We're here in 2015 today. We have had 6,000 years approximately. We don't know exactly, approximately, and we're pretty close with our approximation. We've had 6,000 years of world history. How many days did it take God to create the world? Six days. The Bible says that when Jesus comes, those who are saved will spend 1,000 years in heaven. 
before the new Jerusalem comes down to this earth and this earth becomes the center of the universe and God's people, the saved, lived on this earth for the rest of eternity. A thousand years in heaven. How long have we spent here? Six thousand years. Six days of creation, one day of rest. Are we coming up to that 1,000 years of rest? Are we coming up to that Sabbath? How close are we? What's next? What do you think is next on God's time clock? Any idea? Anyone know what's next? It's the second coming. That's it. It's the second coming. That is how close we are. So whether you take a look at what the atomic scientists are saying or whether you take a look at what God is saying, they are both saying the same thing. The only difference and the big difference is that the scientists are placing their faith and trust in mankind. In who? In mankind. Whereas the saints of God are placing their faith and trust in the Son of Man. Amen? The one who will come to deliver this sin-sick planet through his second coming. Now, is it really that important? Is it really that important for you and I to know how close we are to that midnight hour that Jesus spoke about? You're in Matthew 24. Take a look at verse 42. Matthew 24 and verse 42. Notice here what Jesus says. Matthew 24, verse 42. What's that first word? Watch. Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have done what? He would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore you also what? Be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Watch and be ready. Over and over again, Jesus says watch in Matthew. In Mark, in Luke, in Revelation, the Apostle Paul writes, watch, 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 watch. Why? Why are we to watch? We are to watch in order that we may be ready. That we may be ready and we may not end up like the five foolish virgins who were not ready, who were not prepared. Watch, watch and be ready. Why is it that important to watch? and be ready. What's the big deal? Let me share with you the story of Tilly Smith. I've shared this in the past, but I know there are many of you who haven't heard it. Tilly Smith. Tilly Smith, 11-year-old girl, joined her mother and father um, and her younger sister on, on, on a holiday from England all the way to Phuket. And they were just having a blast. It was Christmas time. And they were just having a blast there on the beautiful beaches of Phuket, building sandcastles, playing in the water, having a great time. It was December 26, 2004. As Tilly was playing there on the, on the beach, she all of a sudden noticed something strange going on and it wasn't the guitar playing. She noticed something strange going on. She noticed the water receding and everybody else did she saw bubbles appearing on the on, on the surface of the water she saw boats bobbing up and down 
And immediately, immediately, Tilly, 11-year-old Tilly, remembered what her geography teacher had taught them two weeks ago at school, just before the end of the year. She remembered what her geography teacher had taught her about tsunamis and how to know that a tsunami is approaching. She saw the signs, everything that the teacher had shared, all the videos that she had seen regarding the signs of an, of an imminent tsunami, they were happening before her very eyes. So whilst the rest of the tourists were wading into the sea and checking out all these interesting corals and fish that were being left behind and thinking, wow, this is pretty cool, this is pretty amazing. She realized that it was not time for fun and games. It was not time to be a tourist. It was not time to be checking out the fish and the coral. It was time to run. She told her mother and father, there is a tsunami coming. And they're like, are you serious? Are you sure? I mean, like, there's a whole bunch of people on the beach. It's the middle of the day. It's a beautiful day. Everyone's having a good time. I mean, who wants to be an alarmist? But she was, she was adamant. There was a tsunami coming. Everyone had to get off the beach immediately. And so her parents took her seriously. They went to the lifeguards, and within a matter of minutes, they evacuated the whole beach. That beach was one of the very few beaches where not one single person lost their lives. Tilly Smith, she met President Clinton. She was awarded many awards for, for her bravery and for her foresight and for the warning that she gave. Notice, schoolgirl who raised the alarm to save about 100 tourists from the December 26, 2004 tsunami. Now, why has God given us warning signs? Why? It's because He wants us to be ready. He wants us to be prepared. There's a big tsunami coming to this world. A big tsunami. We're going to discover that as we go along. He doesn't want you to be caught up in the tsunami. He wants you to be ready. He wants you to be prepared. And what's more, He wants to use you to prepare others. He wants to use you to warn others so that they too can be saved. What's bad about that? That's the reason why Jesus has given us these signs. Now, what is the ultimate purpose for Bible prophecy? What is the ultimate purpose? I want to invite you to go with me to John 14, 29. John 14, 29. And today, today is a bit of an introduction. John 14, 29. I don't know how much of what I've prepared we're going to get through today, but I'm not too concerned about that because we've got plenty more time ahead of us. Well, I'm not quite sure how much, but anyway, we'll do our best with the time that we have. John 14, 29. Page 1549 of your Bibles, page 1549, John 14, 29. Here is the ultimate purpose for Bible prophecy and for the things that Jesus shared with us concerning the signs of His coming. John 14, 29, Jesus says, And now I have told you before it comes, that when it does come to pass, you may what? Believe. So this is the ultimate purpose of Bible prophecy. That when we see these things coming to pass, that we may believe. And what does John 3.16 say? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever what? 
believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. The ultimate purpose of Bible prophecy, of knowing the things that we're going to learn about, is that we may put our faith and confidence and trust in the Word of God, that we may believe in Christ, and by believing in Him, that we may have eternal life. That's the ultimate purpose. You will not be saved if you know the signs. The signs will not save a single person. There is only one who will save, and He is Jesus. And just in case you were wondering and weren't sure about that, have a look at John 13 and verse 19. Once again here, Jesus making a prophecy concerning himself, that is he who would betray him, based on the Old Testament scriptures. John 13 verse 19. Now I tell you before it comes, that when it does come to pass, you may believe that what? I am he. Can you see it? It's as clear as the nose on your face. Jesus has given us Bible prophecy so that when we see these things come to pass, we may put our faith and trust in Him and believe in Him. Amen? What was the problem with the five foolish virgins? What was the problem? I do not what? Know you. I don't know you. I don't know you. So how can I be saved? Go to John 17 verse 3 with me. John 17 verse 3. Here, as clear as the noonday sun, words of Jesus, they're in red. And this is what? Eternal life. So this is it. This is eternal life. Make no mistake, Jesus says, this is eternal life that they may, what's that word? Know you, the only true God, and who? And Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is eternal life. To get to know God, to get to know Christ, this is eternal life. You won't find anywhere in Scripture, nowhere in Scripture, I'll give you a billion dollars if you do. I don't have a billion dollars. I'll give you ten dollars. No, I'll give you more. I've got a bit more than ten dollars, I think, I hope. You won't find anywhere in Scripture where God says, and this is eternal life, that you may know the signs regarding my coming and be saved by knowing them. Nowhere. The signs are all designed to wake us up. That's what the signs are all about. They're all about waking us up. Let me give you a story from my own experience. I was brought up in a Christian home. But during my teenage years, I decided that it was all fairy tales. And it wasn't for me. Yeah, I believed in God, but I mean, who's going to believe these things regarding prophecy and so forth? And at the age of 18, so that's 25 years ago, 1990, at the age of 18, that gives you an idea of how old I am. At the age of 18, I began watching these videos on the books of Daniel and Revelation from my friend. From your grandfather, Leah. He produced those. And those videos, those prophecies woke me up. Wow, this is real. This is real. Well, God said thousands of years ago, I'm watching being fulfilled before my very eyes. That woke me up. Because I was asleep. Bible prophecy 
can be compared to a, what's it called, a defibrillator? What's that called again? Def, how do you say it? Defibrillator. Def, I, I call it jumper leads. Jumper leads. Defibrillator. I was with my friend Jade and um, Sam yesterday and they were telling me what it's called. I just call them jumper leads. You, you, know you, you know what you use that D, D thing for? When someone is what? They're dead. Or, 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 or well, I shouldn't say they're dead, dead, but as in, as in they may be, what's that? Is it clinically dead? Or I know we've got some medical people. Help me out. Unconscious. Well, you're more than just unconscious. You've stopped breathing. The heart has stopped. That's what I'm looking for. The heart has stopped. Okay? And what do they do? They put that on their heart, that defibrillator. Is it okay? No, I think, yeah. They should have called it jumper leads. It's much easier, you know, just jumpstart a car. And that starts the person up, and away they go. But you're not going to put that on that person again the next day and the next day, are you? That is simply to wake a person up. That is simply to bring them back to consciousness. That is simply to get that heart started again. And that is what Bible prophecy is all about. Well, having said all this, I must share with you that I have a heavy responsibility. It's a privilege, a wonderful privilege, but it's a heavy responsibility to be a shepherd under the, under, under the ultimate shepherd, Jesus Christ. The Bible is clear that God invites his servants to share what is taking place. In fact, if you go back to Matthew, Matthew 24, should have asked you to put your bookmark there. Leave your bookmark there, Matthew 24. Notice here what Jesus says in verse 45. Matthew 24 and verse 45. 1428, page 1428. Who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his master made ruler over his household to give them food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master may, sorry, whom his master when he comes will find so doing. Verse 47, sorry, verse 48. But if that evil servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming and begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunkards, the master of the servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him and at an hour that he is not aware of and will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What's Jesus here saying? Jesus here is saying, that there are those who are in responsibility, such as myself, that need to give food in due season. In Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 62, God speaks of his servants as watchmen on the, on the, on the walls of Jerusalem. Watchmen. Here's a powerful scripture from Isaiah 56.10. He says, His watchmen are blind. They are all ignorant. They are all dumb dogs. They cannot bark, sleeping, lying down, loving to slumber. Wow. What a, what a condemnation God has for those that ought to give the warning but don't. In Ezekiel 33, God says that His watchmen 
will have the blood of the people on their hands if they do not share what God wants them to share. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians, he says that God's leaders, God's preachers must give the trumpet a certain sound. It's time to prepare to meet the bridegroom. How do we prepare to meet the bridegroom? Well, first, we need to ask, how close are we to the coming of the bridegroom? And secondly, how can I be ready to meet Jesus? Isn't that the cry that went out at midnight? Prepare. Behold, the bridegroom is what? Coming. Go out to meet him. Go out to meet him. So today we want to begin by looking at a number of signs, a number of important signs that help us to know how close we are indeed to the coming of the bridegroom. Now, can we know exactly when Jesus will come? Notice what Matthew 24 and verse 36 says. Matthew 24 and verse 36. But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. Now, why didn't Jesus give us the exact day of his coming? I mean, the Father, the Father certainly knows when he, when, when he will send Jesus. Why didn't he give us the exact time? Could it be, could it be that God knows the way humans operate? You know, we procrastinate, many of us. Some of us don't. But we often leave things to the last minute. Isn't that right? And there will be many, in fact, may I suggest the majority, who will leave their run right to the very end. They'll want to be on the last train out. And their hearts will not truly be converted. Not truly be converted. Also, let's never forget that regardless of when Jesus comes, the day that you breathe your last, the day that you breathe your last, Jesus has come for you. That's it. You have made your decision. Whatever that decision was, you have made it. There is no more changing. That's why Jesus is always saying, watch and be ready. I'm coming soon. Watch, 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 watch. Be ready constantly. Constantly. But Jesus balances up this statement that no one knows the day or the hour with these words. Go back to verse 32 and verse 33. Verse 32 and verse 33. Now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see all these things, know that it is near even where? At the doors. Even at the doors. Notice Jesus is clear. We cannot know the exact timing of his second coming, but we can know when his coming is near. Now, Jesus gives another analogy. And this time, we find it in Matthew 24 and verse 8, at the end of this section where he outlines some of the key signs that would precede his coming, some of the key events in human history. These words are recorded. Matthew 24, verse 8. All these are the beginning of what? Sorrows. That word there, sorrows, is a very interesting word that Jesus used. Sorrows. It's the word birth pains. Birth pains. Now, some of us are very familiar with birth pains. Some of us have only observed them. Thank God for that, that I'm in the second group. 
that I have not personally experienced birth pains. Amen. One guy said amen. God bless you, Gomez. He's a pastor as well. That's why. I'm telling you, man, we are so blessed that we have not experienced or will never experience birth pains. Amen? Amen. Wow. But one thing I do know about birth pains is that they are very, very real and very, very visible. How many of you would agree with that? Absolutely. Birth pains, just like the coming of Jesus, according to Jesus, will be visible, progressive, and climactic. Isn't that right? That's what birth pains are. They, they, they move to a climax. They progress to a climax. And they're very, very visible. Let me also suggest that labor pains generally now, I know there are some women that don't have any pain at all or very minimal pain. I've heard of situations like that. But the majority generally experience those labor pains intensifying in severity and frequency. Isn't that right? So what Jesus is saying is that we can expect before his coming that things in this world will intensify in severity and frequency. Now, is this taking place today? Is this really taking place today? You will be the judge. We don't have too much time left, but we're going to start looking at the signs. We may only get through two of them today, and I think that's probably all we'll have time for. But the first one that we want to take a look at, signs you can't ignore. Well, you can if you want to at your own peril, but if you're Tilly Smith, you won't ignore these signs. Signs you won't ignore. The first one we want to take a look at is signs in the natural world. Matthew 24. Matthew 24 and verse 7. Notice what Jesus says. Matthew 24, verse 7. Halfway down, Matthew 24, verse 7. Halfway down, verse 7. And there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. Now, Jesus here is outlining signs in the natural world. There have always been famines and pestilences and earthquakes. There have always been these destructive forces of nature. However, if you remember, the next words of Jesus were, all these are the beginning of sorrows. So what Jesus is saying is, just before my coming, you need to expect an intensification of severity and frequency. Are we all together on that? So let's take a... Well, before we do that, notice what the book of Revelation has to say. In Revelation eleven eighteen, The nations were angry and your wrath has come. And the time of the dead, that they should be judged and that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints. So this is in the context of the coming of Jesus. In the context of God bringing forth his rewards. Very clearly. It's a time of the end. Notice what we continue to read. And those who fear your name, small and great. Notice these last words. And that you should destroy those who do what? Destroy the earth. Destroy those who destroy the earth. The skeptics had a field day with these words 2,000 years ago when John wrote these words. They had an absolute field day. Why is that? Because 2,000 years ago, it was laughable. It was ludicrous to suggest that humans could destroy the world. How are you going to destroy the world with rocks 
and spears and knives and bows and arrows. Be my guest, destroy the world. They laughed. The skeptics laughed and laughed and laughed. But guess what? 2,000 years later, no one's laughing. No one's laughing. We are now for the first time in human history, for the first time in 6,000 years, we are living at a time where humans are capable of literally fulfilling these words, destroying the world. Never before in human history has this been real. Never before. Through either nuclear arsenal or by destroying the environment. Isaiah chapter 51 and verse 6 speaks of a natural world in spectacular decline in its final days. Isaiah shares the earth will grow old like a garment. Is the earth growing old like an old garment? Have you heard of climate change? Who here hasn't heard of climate change? We all have. And what is climate change? Well, I went on to the Australian Conservation Foundation website and I was startled, startled. And some of you know this. I'm sure all of us know this. But this, this, this really caught my attention. Decades of climate science has found that if we fail to reduce carbon pollution, climate change will have profound impacts on our planet. How profound? Notice these words. These, these are the scientists. Okay, there are many that poo-hoo these scientists as alarmists, as being paid by the government, all sorts of cons conspiracies. Okay, that this is just all hogwash, to put it nicely. <laughs> but the scientists, I don't believe, are just saying things for the sake of creating some kind of political chaos and some kind of and, and, and some kind of um, tool in the government's hand in order to hold us as prisoners. I don't believe that. Notice this. Sea level rise affects coastal property, people and ecosystems. Check this out. By 2050, so that's in 35 years' time from now, and a four-degree increase in temperature or half a metre in sea level rise, notice this. And th this is not me, this is, this is in the article, they've highlighted this. 130 million per people per year are expected to be flooded. Whoa, 130 million people every year will be flooded if things continue to deteriorate. According to the Secretary General of the UN, he suggests that humanity has never faced a greater challenge, never, ever, than climate change. Just recently, Barack Obama um, had an interview with uh, David Attenborough. We have all heard of David Attenborough on this very issue and asking David Attenborough, who's been studying wildlife for decades, he asked him the question and I watched it. Have things changed from when you began filming to now? Huge changes. Huge changes. This is a guy that's been there, done that. Pope Francis, he put out a 180-page encyclical not so long ago, just a, a few weeks ago, a month or, or so ago. 
Pope Francis calls for action here and now to tackle climate change and halt unprecedented destruction. Everyone's getting in on the act, political leaders, religious leaders. Pope Francis says man's greed will destroy world, urges world leaders to help the hungry. The hungry? Are people hungry? What did Jesus say? There will be famines. Yes, there have been famines. But there's never been a time in, in Earth's history where some one billion people have gone to bed hungry every single night. And of those one billion, there are 21,000 that don't make it through the day. 21,000 people die of hunger-related diseases every single day. I did the maths. That's one person every four seconds. One person every four seconds dies of hunger-related diseases somewhere around the world. And as you and I well know, most of them are children. What did Jesus say? Those labor pains would intensify. They would come closer and closer together. If we destroy creation, wrote Francis, creation will destroy us. Now you may be thinking, who on earth is going to listen to this person? Okay, he's a religious leader at the end of the day. Okay, he's the Pope, but who's really going to listen to him? Who's going to really pay much attention to what he has to say? Is anyone really going to take this individual seriously? Well, you may have heard of this individual, Barack Obama. Anyone heard of Barack Obama? He takes Pope Francis very seriously. I picked this up. June 19. Obama calls for world leaders to heed Pope Francis's message. And that message is a huge message. It has huge prophetic implications, which we don't have time to get into today. I'll share that with you on another occasion. The president is saying that all world leaders need to heed the message from the pontiff that he appears to have the solution for mankind's woes. The political leaders are coming up short. Looks like someone has come to help them out in just the nick of time. Pope Francis. There'll be more on that as we go along. What about mass animals dying off. I don't know how many of you have heard, but recently, in the last few years, the last two or three years, there have been mass animal die-offs. How many of you have heard of that? Okay, some of you have. I'm talking about hundreds, thousands of birds falling out of the sky dead. I'm talking about dolphins in their hundreds just washing up on the shores. Fish, you name it. It's been happening all around the world, in different parts of the world, mass animal die-offs. I watched this documentary on National Geographic, and it began in about 2011, 2012, so just a few years ago. That's when it all began, this incredible phenomena. Notice this headline. Mass animal die-offs are on the rise, killing billions and raising questions. Subtitle. Huge animal die-offs, along with disease outbreaks and other population sorry, and other population stressors are happening more often. This is National Geographic. Things are changing. The skeptics don't want you to believe that, but things are changing in our world. 
I don't know how much it has to all do with, with climate change and the ozone layer depleted and, and CO2. And I, I'm not a scientist. I'm just a simple Bible student. That's all I am. I'm just a simple Bible student. I read my Bible and I keep my eyes open and I do what Jesus said, watch. And I'm watching the big stuff and I'm seeing that we're living in strange and unusual times. This was the front page of Time magazine back in um, February, is it? March, August? Last year, I can't see the, the date up there. Anyway, a world without bees. Have you ever thought of what this world would be like without bees? You know those little things? Bees. What's the big deal about bees? Who cares if they died off? Uh, subtitle, the price we'll pay if we don't figure out what's killing the honeybee. Did you realise that honeybees are being killed off in unprecedented numbers? Unprecedented numbers. If the honeybee became extinct, we would be up the creek. Bees pollinate our food supply. No bees means very little food. We are in serious trouble. Can you see things are coming to a head? I went on to the International Disaster Database. Okay, This is an official monitoring um, agency, and this is, their, this is their website, Natural Disasters. And I took a look at the natural disaster trends from the year 1900 to 2011. Okay, that's, that, that, that's all I had up to 2011. Notice this graph here. You may not be able to see it, but you can see it there. These are the natural disasters that have been taking place in the world from 1900 all the way to 2011. Now, you do not need a PhD to know what's going on. It's absolutely clear for all to see. Are the contractions intensifying, yes or no? Absolutely. I mean, it's there for all to see. Wow, look at that. That's just phenomenal. Especially once we pass those 1960s. Look, it's just been... It's just been straight up. Jesus talked about earthquakes. Before we get to that, earthquakes. Have a look at what Jesus said. Matthew 24, and um, I'm in verse 7. And there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. Jesus said this would be another sign. Earthquakes. Now, the skeptics will come along and they'll say, there really, really hasn't been an increase in earthquakes. The reason why we're recording more earthquakes now is because we've got these fancy, dancy apparatus all around the world which we never had 100 years ago or 500 years ago or 1,000 years ago. We're able to detect an earthquake anywhere at any time almost. We've got these instruments everywhere. There are no signs at all. So I decided that I was going to tap into the words of Jesus in Luke 21 11 where Jesus says there will be what great earthquakes in various places so I decided to research the great earthquakes and I'm talking about the big earthquakes that so you don't need a fancy dancy instrument to tell you that there's an earthquake going on okay where things are falling apart where where everything is 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 coming to an end where the world seems to be ending I went on to the 
US Geological Society website. That's the main website. This is all from the horse's mouth. And I decided to take a look at the largest earthquakes in the world since 1900. Okay, since now, the largest ones, okay. And I decided to take a look at earthquakes that were 8.5 and greater on the Richter scale. Now, is 8.5 or greater a big earthquake? It's huge. I mean, it levels pretty much everything in its path. Huge. And there were 17 in the last 200 and, sorry, in the last 112 years, there were 17 earthquakes, 8.5 and greater. Between 1900 and 1999, there were 11. So that's about one every 10 years. One every how many years? 10 years. One every 10 years. And then the third millennium began. From 2000 to 2012, we have had six. 8.5 and greater. I wanted to make this as simple as simple can be. It's absolutely as plain as the noonday sun. One every two years, 8.5 and greater in the last decade alone. We've had five earthquakes in the last 112 years that were nine on the Richter scale and above. Five. According to this list, Three of them took place in the last century and we've already had two in the last 12 years. Two in 12 years and three in 100. Even if you're not good at maths, you can see the difference. Wow. That's why, my friends, over 1,500 scriptures point to the second coming of Jesus. The second coming of Jesus is that incredible promise that runs from Genesis to Revelation. Because you see, our only hope, our only hope is in Jesus. Amen? That's our only hope. There is no other hope. And we want to, and I want to leave you with this precious scripture, Titus 2.13. Looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. This program has been brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio.